0: Good morning. morning. Unlike Jim Grinnell, I'm going to put this down without flipping the microphone right off. It's not actually the microphone, it's just a cover, So, just in case you were worried. I've got to give Jim grief. It's part of my fun of life. It's one of the greatest joys I have in life, (laughs) giving Jim grief. Of course, he can dish it out as well as take it. So, You know, the truth is we celebrate and mark all kinds of occasions in life, don't we? And several months ago, some of you may remember... Those of you who didn't sleep through it, in another sermon that I preached, we looked at the idea of milestones and memorials and our need to remember certain kinds of things. And we noted that there's all kinds of things that are marked in our culture and some of those things are pretty important and some of them are kind of silly or even absurd. For example, did you know that today, October 15th, is World Math Day? And all of a sudden, there we go. That's how I look when I'm doing math. It's also today Chicken catchatory Day and World Grouch Day. So I finally have an excuse. It's World Grouch Day. Coming up the next few weeks, we have Chocolate Cupcake Day. That's this Wednesday, definitely going to celebrate that, right? But tomorrow is Feral Cat Day. The question is why? I guess it's because of the mice that they catch, huh? Uh, Next Sunday, a week from today, is Nut Day. Now we're talking about the kind of nuts you eat, not the kind of people that we worry about encountering in our daily lives. Have a cashew. And now uh, a week from tomorrow is actually Herb Jordan's birthday. That's definitely, definitely worth marking and even celebrating. And also this month we have Greasy Food Day and Beer Day. Now, we've decided that we're going to mark my father-in-law's birthday by celebrating nuts, greasy food, beer, and his birthday with a dinner of chicken cacciatore. (laughs) So if these things are all worth celebrating or marking or making a big deal out of in some way or another, at least according to some people, why is it that most of us who have been significantly impacted by an event that was 500 years ago this month don't even think about it let alone mark it or celebrate it in any way. So I want to ask a question of our studio audience here. How many of you know what we will mark on October 31st? Okay, I would guess now some of you are cheating because, because <laughs> your birthday? The day, the day before. That's an important occasion. That's right, the day before Dorothy's birthday. Now, some of you cheated because I told you And uh, most of you think, well, of course, in our culture on October 31st, we celebrate Halloween, right? But there's something way more significant than Halloween on that date. That's because on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, Martin Luther lit the match that became what we now call the Reformation. And the Reformation is one reason that we are sitting here together in this church this morning in a church that's not part, that is a part of the fruit of the Reformation and not a Roman Catholic or a Greek, Eastern, or Rus- Russian Orthodox church this morning. And so we don't label ourselves necessarily as Protestant here at TCF, but we are Protestant in the sense that we're not Catholic because of what started 500 years ago on October 31st. Now, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, and he was a Bible professor at the University of Wittenberg, in Germany. He wasn't the first to speak out against some of the excesses of the Catholic Church which he served, and he wasn't responsible for everything that the reformation became over the next decades. But there was something incredibly timely about what he did on that fateful day. The door of the church in Wittenberg was a sort of bulletin board. It was this was long before Twitter, okay? So when people wanted to debate something, when they wanted to announce something, it went on the door of the church at Wittenberg. Luther intended that day to spark a debate about indulgences. We'll look at those in a moment. So he wrote a list of debate points, and he nailed them to the door of that church. Now we're going to see a very short, about four and a half minute dramatization here now. about the Reformation, made about Martin Luther specifically. And uh, I love several things about that. First of all, I thought Joel, maybe next time that we're up here and we're trying to get their attention to get everybody back after the greeting time, we can do just like he did. Order! We must have order! I, I'm going to try that maybe next week. The thing that I love the most about that clip is the phrase, and I hope that describes all of us, that phrase that he said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. Wow, what a powerful statement that is. We'll look at this a little bit more shortly. So uh, that condensed about four years of Martin Luther. We saw him nailing the 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. And then we saw the scene in 1521 at what they called the Diet of Worms. Worms was a city in uh, Germany where this took place and where he uh, said, I will not recant. And he said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. So the 95 theses, he posted these on the Wittenberg door and they were written in Latin. That was the language of the church scholars in those days. But they were very soon, and we saw that happen, these guys took it off there and they translated it into German and they printed it and it was uh, spread throughout Germany and there soon thereafter in other languages. It spread within months uh, throughout Europe. And uh, one scholar of Luther writes this. He says, as a pamphlet of popular revolution, it is, with the exception of the occasional rhetorical flourish, a remarkably dull piece of work which requires a reasonably sound knowledge of late medieval Catholic theology and practice even to understand many of its statements. Nevertheless, it seems to have struck a popular chord, becoming rapidly translated into German and becoming a bestseller within weeks. So Luther's protest was never intended by him to result in what became a church split, what became what we now call the Reformation, and eventually what became the hundreds of different Christian denominations that we know today. Luther was calling, his 95 Theses, here's what it was really called, a disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences out of love and zeal for the truth and the desire to bring it to light. 95 Theses is a little more catchy and easy to remember, isn't it? He did this as a faithful monk and a priest who had been appointed the professor of biblical theology at the University of Wittenberg. It was a very small, virtually unknown institution in a small German town. So Luther's hope was to reform the Catholic Church, not to start new Protestant churches. He never even would have thought of the name. The Roman Catholic Church was at the time the only formal, organized expression of Christian life in the 16th century. But as is the tendency of us sinful creatures, the church had grown soft. It had drifted from biblical truth It had added works and merit to salvation, and it was a victim of its own excess. So the specific spark of the Reformation, the thing that Luther most strongly objected to and led over time to additional criticisms was indulgences. I teased Dallas this morning that that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about indulgences, and I want to tell you that everybody who gives $100 to TCF Missions this week will have 300 years out of purgatory. I want you to know that now. So everybody's getting their checks out right now. Now, here's, here's a Catholic Bible, and this is from 1965. I want to read a few inscriptions. Now, as a Catholic kid, and I'll get into that more a moment ago, I, uh, I used to read these in my Bible, and I used to do these things because purgatory is a scary idea, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But here's one of the things that's in this Catholic Bible from basically the indulgence handbook, okay? An indulgence of three years is granted to the faithful who read the books of the Bible for at least a quarter of an hour with the reverence due to the divine word and as spiritual reading. To the faithful who piously read at least some verses of the gospel and in addition, while kissing the gospel book, devoutly recite one of the following invocations. May our sins be blotted out through the words of the gospel. May the reading of the gospel be our salvation and protection. May Christ, the Son of God, teach us the words of the holy gospel. An indulgence of 500 days is granted. A plenary plenary indulgence under the usual conditions is granted to those who for a whole month daily act in the way indicated above. Okay, so this is what you lived with as a Catholic back in the day, and they still teach about indulgences and then there's two prayers that they have here I won't read through the whole prayers but what it says at the bottom of these is if you say these prayers you have an indulgence of five years and a plenary indulgence which is like a total indulgence it's like you get everything forgiven under the usual conditions if the prayer has been recited daily for a month okay so this was indulgences in the Catholic Church in 1965 indulgences were related to another very unbiblical doctrine of the Catholic Church called purgatory. Now, purgatory is where faithful Catholics go after death to burn away the sinful impurities that they had remaining when they died. All of us in this room will have sinful impurities on the day we die. This is how an indulgence is defined in the Code of Canon Law and in the Catholic Church Catechism. It says... An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. Think about that. You needed an indulgence for, for sins that have already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions, like these penances that we just read, through the action of the church, which as a minister of redemption dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and of the saints. Chew on that for a second. Now, the temporal punishment referred to here can can include, usually does and was thought to include, I know because this is what I thought as a young Catholic, purgatory. And indulgences are still a part of Catholic doctrine today. So to gain indulgences, whether plenary or partial, it is necessary that the faithful be in a state of grace at least at the time the indulgence to work was completed. That is, one must be a Catholic, not excommunicated, or in schism. Now that applies to us, folks. You know who's in schism? We are. We're in schism because we're not Catholic. That means that if Catholic doctrine is true, we are doomed to have our sins purged in purgatory before we can enjoy the presence of Christ assuming we can do that at all. Indulgences also can only be applied to yourself or to the souls of the deceased. Okay? That's why you can light a candle or pray for people who are dead. But they cannot be applied to other persons living on earth. I can't pray for an indulgence for any of you or do a work for any indulgence for any of you today. Now it wasn't until some years later that Luther himself denied the doctrine of purgatory. What he objected to in 1517 was not indulgences or purgatory. What he objected to was selling indulgences for money. The sale of indulgences was fairly widespread in Europe those days. Among the worst offenders was a priest named Johann Tetzel. Now imagine for a moment believing this doctrine in purgatory. Okay, Imagine the emotional strain of believing this. After death, you faced centuries, if not millennia, of excruciating fire in purgatory. It's like a temporary hell, but temporary can be a very long time. Remember, this was for believing Catholic Christians. You didn't go to purgatory to pay your way into eternity. This is what the sacrifice of christ was for that's what got you into eternity with christ purgatory was for sins that were forgiven sins that you knew christ had died for sins that you confessed that you did penance for and you received absolution for the gist of this idea of purgatory is that jesus paid the eternal debt but not the temporal debt for our sins we pay those off ourselves So what's more, you knew that those faithful Catholic Christians who had died before you were probably in purgatory right now, suffering. So you can imagine how ripe for abuse this would be. Wouldn't if you knew that your Aunt Fanny had died and that she was a good Catholic, but she was probably in in purgatory, wouldn't you want to do something to get her out? That's where this abuse came from. Today, Catholics do not sell indulgences anymore. To gain indulgences, you do works or specific prayers, like I read from this Catholic Bible. Okay, But in Luther's day, they were also sold, and they were sold for money. So Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, that I mentioned a moment ago, he was the infamous priest known for being a very cunning, indulgence salesman. And he supposedly had a little marketing catchphrase. Whether he actually said this or not is disputed, but there are records that this was used to sell indulgences. Remember, you could purchase indulgences for your dead loved ones, okay? So the little ditty went like this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Catchy, huh? Can you see that on a billboard somewhere, huh? Now being repulsed by this sort of thing was the initial driving force, it was the match, it was the spark that started the Reformation with Luther 500 years ago this month. But I'll tell you what, I see these things in the church today. I could see something almost like that. It reminds me of somebody like maybe a TV preacher. Creflo Dollar comes to mind, asking people to give toward his $65 million private jet in exchange for God's blessings. But the Reformation became so much more, so much more than just about indulgences, just about purgatory. Now, let me take a short, important, but related detour for a moment. I want to tell you that this morning's message is not intended as a knock on the Catholic Church, okay? I still have a lot of respect for the Church, despite its flaws. I speak this morning as an ex-Catholic who was born and raised in the Catholic Church. My dad's side of the family comes from centuries of Irish Catholic faith. My mom converted to Catholicism to marry my dad because you couldn't marry a Catholic unless you were a Catholic. I was an infant at St. Elizabeth's Catholic Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was a church that I attended until I was seven years old. And I also attended the Catholic school there in first and second grade. And then we moved to a little town near Buffalo, New York called Batavia. And there I went to St. Mary's grade school. And in St. Mary's grade school, I received my first communion in second grade there. Look at little Billy in his little white bow tie and a little white jacket. Huh? I was confirmed there in middle school. That was another important rite of passage for Catholic youth. And I was confirmed by the bishop of the Diocese of Buffalo, not because we were special. That's, that's the way it was done. The bishop came to do confirmations. I was an altar boy. I served as an altar boy at Masses for several years. I attended Notre Dame High School. Notre Dame is French for Our Lady. That's Mary, okay, the Virgin Mary, who is still in many ways not just honored but venerated in the Catholic Church. I attended Mass pretty much every Sunday Sunday For the first 18 years of my life and on many other occasions, even weekdays, good Catholics would go to church to mass on weekday mornings and I would serve as an altar boy at some of those or attend with my dad. So in many ways, I really believe that my Catholic upbringing laid the foundation for the faith that I have today. When I was a young adolescent, I very seriously considered the Catholic priesthood. That was until I became a teenager and discovered girls and realized priests couldn't be married, and that went out the way, so maybe I wasn't as serious about that as I thought. But these are my Catholic roots, okay? These are my Catholic credentials. So even though I can recognize the deep error, and I believe it is that, the deep error in some Catholic theology and still have respect for the church, I wanted to say that. I wanted to give that caveat. This is who's speaking to you this morning. After I accepted Christ and began for the first time in my life to really read the Bible for myself, we weren't encouraged to do that as young Catholics, I learned, to my surprise, how much of the Catholic Mass is actually right from the Scriptures, the same Scriptures that you and I read. So when I tell you some of the problems that I see with the Catholic Church before the Reformation, some of those problems still exist today. It's not meant as Catholic bashing, okay? I actually knew some very fine Christian people in the Catholic Church with whom any of us here in this room this morning could have a wonderful sharing of faith with today. Still, I have to recognize that without the Reformation, how I came to trust in Christ would have looked very different it took a protestant christian to lead me to the lord it took a protestant family to help me see that salvation was not found in the catholic church as an institution any more than salvation is found in any old baptist church or pentecostal church or even here at tcf salvation is found in christ alone it took a protestant expression of faith to show me that this salvation was a very personal thing, something I had to believe, something I had to receive as an individual. While being raised Catholic, no one ever told me that I had to receive Christ for myself, that I had to accept His forgiveness for my sins. And this could not be mediated through the Catholic Church. No one ever suggested to me that I read the Bible for myself, and that the Bible was actually sufficient for my faith and my practice. No one told me that, that my justification before God was a matter of His grace received through my faith in Jesus' sacrifice. In all the years of Catholic school, Catholic Church, I never considered the idea that I didn't need a priest to mediate my forgiveness, to mediate my prayers, my relationship with God. So as I thought, that it was important to mark, to recognize this 500th anniversary of the Reformation at TCF this morning. Since we are, in a very real way, children of that movement, I had to think of why. Why is this important? What does it matter? Why was it important? Is it still important to us, or is it just history? And even if it is just history, what can and should we learn from it? Related to that, should we even think about celebrating what the Reformation brought us that we still celebrate or that we still benefit from today? There are a lot of things that grew out of the Reformation well beyond Luther's initial spark. Some of those things we can trace directly to Martin Luther, others to reformers who followed in his footsteps, For example, think about this. Luther loved music, and the Catholic Church had very little, if any, music in the Mass then. That's changed, too. There's more music in Catholic Masses today. Luther introduced music into worship, and he wrote many hymns, including one that most of us know, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So we can trace the beginnings of congregational worship, as we know it, in music to the Reformation. How about the Protestant work ethic? The idea that all work can be done to the glory of God, so whatever we do, we should do it to the glory of God, and we should do it with excellence. We have to be diligent. That's, of course, a very biblical idea, but this, too, had been undermined and mostly lost in the days before the Reformation. The only work that mattered in those days was religious work. That, too, was changed by the Reformation and by the impact of that. In some ways, you can trace the understanding that the church is not the state and the state is not the church to the Reformation as well. There was an unhealthy, even unholy relationship between government and the church before the Reformation, and that began to change. Generally, church historians and scholars point to the primary imp- uh, impact of the Reformation in what they see as a, ref- a restoration to the church of five key things that are called the five solas. Who's heard those, that phrase? The five solas. Sola is a Latin word for only or alone. And the five solas that received renewed emphasis after the Reformation, during and after the Reformation, were Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. These things indeed are the things that matter today about the Reformation. But here's the other thing why the title of this message is Reformed and Reforming. Sadly, even today, these things, though restored in emphasis and restored in understanding because of the Reformation, they're still being battled over in many ways by the churches of that very churches that came from that Reformation. That's why we can't remember the Reformation just by remembering how badly the Catholic Church blew it back in the day. Hebrews tells us, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's something we all need to pay attention to. We, and I include all of us in here, certainly the church at large, we are no less susceptible to drift from the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, than the Catholics of the 16th century. Because here we are, 500 years later, still infected with a sin nature that causes us to lose or undermine these important solas, just as the Catholic Church had in many ways before the Reformation lost these things, before Luther and those who followed him came along. How else can we explain these TV preachers begging for money? or selling prayer cloths or something else, collecting vast sums from people desperate for some kind of favor with God. Indulgences, anyone? That's what it makes me think of. Yes, we still need the Reformation in many ways. So if you think about these, and I did, and I had to pick some key remnants of the Reformation, the ones that I most want to remember or celebrate I would say it is these three. The Reformation restored the authority of the Word of God. The Reformation reemphasized justification by grace through faith. And the Reformation rediscovered the priesthood of all those who are in Christ. And in all these things, Protestant churches still stand largely in opposition to or in protest against the teaching even of the modern day. Catholic Church. I put the word of God authority at the top. And I did that for a reason. I believe it's really the foundation for God's delivery to us of all the five solas. They all fall under the authority of the word of God. And everything else positive that came out of the reformation, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3:16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Word of God gives us what we need, what we need to teach, what we need for correction. The Word tells us how to be righteous. It examines our hearts so that we can repent and be holy. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we say the Bible is our only rule for faith and practice, we mean that we hold the Bible, God's holy word, to be our ultimate guide for what we believe, that's our faith, and what we do, that's our practice. We mean that the Bible is higher than man's authority. It is more important than church tradition. And certainly, it's way more important than my opinion, your opinion, or what we feel. What we mean is that we will allow nothing that opposes or contradicts God's Word to dictate our actions or control our thinking. This is incredibly important. So when we say that the Bible is our only authority, we mean that we agree with the Reformers' idea of sola scriptura, only Scripture. I believe that TCF stands firmly in this fruit of the Reformation. Now, we don't claim to do it perfectly, but our heart as leaders of this church, and we trust your heart as members of this body of believers, is to allow the Word of God to be our authority, to be the final decision-maker whenever we have to decide on anything important about our faith and about how we live out our faith. And just as the Reformers had to battle to make this so, remember Luther's response before the assembly at the Diet of Worms. My conscience is held captive to the Word of God. Is our conscience held captive to the Word of God? Is that true of us? Even when the culture is telling us something that is categorically different from what the Word of God clearly speaks. Is our conscience held captive to the Word of God? Luther also said this about the Word. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. It's not just our culture that often tells us something very different from what the Word clearly speaks. After all, what should we expect from unbelievers except to act like unbelievers? There are many universities and churches, again, which originally grew out of these principles that we're looking at this morning that came out of the Reformation. They've long ago abandoned the idea that Scripture is their final authority for faith and practice. They have been conformed to the world and not shaped by the word. Another Lutherism, something else Martin Luther said, which recognizes this trait of human nature. He says human nature is like a drunk peasant. Lift him into the saddle on one side, and over he topples on the other side. So you fix it one way, and he goes over the other way. Let's agree. Let's agree together to stand firm in this wonderful truth of the Reformation. The Word is our final authority for faith in practice. It forms not just what we believe but how we act. It shapes what we do. May that be true of this church always and for all who attend here. Secondly, I want to highlight that there's the sola of faith alone and grace alone, the two solas. Justification, our standing before God. On what basis are believers in Christ saved from eternal damnation? It is so clear in Scripture, folks. It is so clear. And here's just two. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. And we read in Titus 3.5 that He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Folks, these are central truths. These are non-negotiables for us who are believers in Christ. And these are truths that I never heard in the Catholic Church. Now, they were in my Catholic Bible, both those scriptures that I just read, but I never heard it. I never heard them spoken, and I never read it for myself. These are truths that were reemphasized by the Reformation, justification by God's grace through faith in his sacrifice for us that we can't earn our way into heaven by our merits. We can't work our way to heaven. Now, Luther agonized over this. If you know some of his story, he really did agonize because he had a deep understanding of his own sinful heart. He knew that he could never be good enough, even though he probably tried more than any of us did ever have the Reformation restored the truth that it's in Christ alone that we are saved it's not a result of being in a specific church though there are certainly some churches that will do a better job than others of teaching this truth in Christ alone I put my trust as the song we sing here sometimes says in Christ alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. This is the critical doctrine of justification by grace through faith. The reformers didn't invent it. God did. But the reformation was God's instrument to restore it to the church of Jesus Christ at a time when it had appeared lost. And we stand on this solid ground today because of it. And then there's the priesthood of all believers. Now, a few weeks ago in our house church, we're studying Hebrews together, and we looked at the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Jews had to have an imperfect human mediator. The Jewish priest, or even the high priest, was a sinner just like them. That means he had to sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, did away with that. He was a better high priest, and his sacrifices were once for all. And He didn't have to be repeating these sacrifices again and again and again because the people kept sinning again and again and again. And as a result, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we believers have the joy and the amazing privilege of entering the Holy of Holies, God's very throne room with Jesus as our advocate, because His sacrifice made a way for us. We don't need a human priest. I hold, told the group a couple of weeks ago that we don't have priests at TCF, because they don't need priests. Yes, God gives leaders, okay? Ephesians 4.11 tells us that God gives the church leadership gifts for the administration, for the ministry, and for the functioning of the church. But elders, pastors, teachers, are not priests. You don't need me to intervene for you for forgiveness of sin. Now, I might, if you wish, and you ask me to, pray with you for forgiveness or for anything else, but you can go to God on your own because you are in Christ. You don't need me to represent you before God. The Hebrews did. The Catholics didn't, but they seemed to think over time that they did, and they still do. In fact, when I was a young Catholic boy, only priests could even handle the communion elements, and that has as much to do with the Catholic teaching about the physical presence of Christ in those elements as it does the priesthood. Now, that has changed in the Catholic Church, too, and quote-unquote lay people can serve communion in the Catholic Church. But think about this. Have you noticed a TCF... We don't have a distinction between clergy, priests, ministers, whatever you want to call, and laity. We as elders of TCF never refer to you as lay people. You're the, you're the saints, you're the fellowship, you're our brothers and sisters. Why is that? We have leadership roles, yes, and we see as we see in Scripture, and we take those roles seriously. But again, we are not priests at least in the Old Testament or Catholic sense. Why is that? Because we're all priests. Because we're all priests. That rediscovered understanding was renewed in the Reformation. We read in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and we read in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 for through him Jesus we both have access in one spirit to the father we can go directly to God the father because Jesus lives inside of us Hebrews 10:19 tells us we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus i want to say this morning thank God for the reformation thank God for what he restored as a result of what the reformers like Luther did. And I I don't want to lionize Martin Luther as a flawless saint. If you know much about his history, you know he was anything but flawless, okay? He was an imperfect vessel, as are we all. But in this day, the church, in his day I should say, in his day, the church had grown fond of addition. They started adding tradition to Scripture. They added faith to works. They added priests to Jesus. In doing that, they created doctrines that undercut the gospel of Jesus Christ. They stifled the gospel message and exchanged it for a people-powered, church-dominated, works-focused religion. And that was entirely foreign to the good news that we read in Scripture that they had then and that we have today. The Reformers helped restore that our authority is in the Word alone. The Reformers reestablished that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Him and not according to our own effort. The Reformers helped us see, again, the Bible's wonderful truth that in Christ we have access by His Spirit into the very throne room of God for forgiveness, for grace, for any of our needs. We only need one mediator or priest, and that's Jesus. And His Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. The Reformers also helped us see that all of this is not for our glory. It's for our good, but it's for His glory. So for these things, I'm thankful to stand here today as an ex-Catholic, saved by His grace, to serve and follow Him the rest of my days, That's why I think, folks, these things are worth remembering this morning as we mark 500 years since that spark that lit the fire of the Reformation. So I want you to think about that on October 31st this year as you hand out candy for Halloween. Amen? Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you chose to use the imperfect vessel of Martin Luther the imperfect vessels of all the other reformers who helped restore these important truths to the church and that we can benefit from the fruit of this even today, Father, that we have the Word of God as our final authority for faith and practice. Lord, that we know we are justified by faith. Your grace, Father, through our faith, we are justified and sanctified before you, Heavenly Father. We thank you, Father, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's why we don't have to worry about going to purgatory or praying for or paying for indulgences, Father, to gain your favor because you've covered our sins and you've removed them as far as the east is from the west. Father, we're grateful that we have direct access into your very throne room because Jesus made a way for us through his sacrifice. We're grateful for these things, Father. Help us to never take these things for granted. And, Father, help us to continue to walk in the fruit of the Reformation, Lord, as we follow you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.